Thanks, Ron. Appreciate you. Hey, you know, you're the last service, okay? This is so, you know, when you do this, I don't know how Ron does this every Sunday, okay? 8 o'clock service, what is it, 9.15? I don't even know idea. Now it is 11.15, is that what we are now? But you know what happens when you do this over three services? The first service, you are tight. You hit your marks. You make this short, brief, get on to the next service. Second service, you're maybe a little longer. You guys are stuck here all afternoon, okay? Because I am in no hurry to finish this up. I'm just going to tell you right now. I'm tired, so we're just going to take our time and do this slow, okay? No, not really. My name is Jim Wallace. By the way, I should probably reset. Oh, it's been re- I reset it. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't know I did that. I've been working in Los Angeles County for about 25 years plus doing mostly cold case investigations. Now, these are just unsolved murders because there's no statute of limitations on a murder. Now, if you like Dateline, and you all like Dateline, uh, I've been on there a bunch, I think more than anybody else in the country. So you may have seen some of the cases we're going to talk about today. I think I've got two or three cases that are Dateline cases we're going to talk about. But I will tell you that most of my time as a detective, early on at least, I was not a believer because I didn't become a believer until I was 35. No Christians in my family. And in Los Angeles, honestly, you could live... I grew up in a place that I didn't think there were... I I would never have known if there was a Christian. It was possible to navigate the world in Southern California for that entire time without ever bumping into somebody who would claim Christ. At least the people I knew... Now, I did meet Christians as a police officer, two kinds. The kinds that, number one, were cops. I had a couple of those I worked with. And they would give you 15 reasons why this guy is the suspect in your murder, but they couldn't give you two reasons why I should trust the Bible. I always to ask them. They were not prepared to defend what they said was true. Really? Then I met a bunch of people who said they were Christians, far more than the police officers. These were the people we were taking to jail. These people would say they were Christians. I remember I watched a bank robbery one time, and I was working undercover. So I was in the bank when this robbery was occurring, okay? He runs back to his car. I run back out. I radio my guys. I say, yep, we got a good bank robbery. So now we're in a pursuit of this guy in plane cars. We end up crashing his car, putting him in the back of my car, taking him to jail. And on the way there, he told me how he got saved. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, it's working out for you, isn't it? Right? I mean, I don't want to be a part of either a system that nobody can defend or that doesn't seem like it affects your behavior. So I was out. Now, my son was raised in the church, and he's wearing the same uniform that I wore. As a matter of fact, the last day I worked on the job, I asked my sergeant if I could just get in the car with my son and work one shift in patrol with my son as his partner, which we did. It was ugly, okay? It was because I had not been in a uniform it was like, seriously, 10 pounds of dirt in a five-pound bag, okay? It was bad, okay? I was not barely fitting in that uniform to begin with, okay? And then, on top of it all, when I went 10-8, when I got the radio and told the dispatcher we were going to go be active, start our shift, go 10-8, she said, I used a two-man car moniker, and she came back on a cell phone, called me, and says, dude, you're not a two-man car. You are a one-man car with a ride-along. You haven't done anything in years, Okay? <laughs> So we're not dispatching you to calls where you need two guys. My son, of course, was like, hey, we're going to get in a pursuit today and a shooting. I said, Jimmy, no, we're not, okay? This is my last day to work. We're just going to eat, drive around in circles, take a lot of pictures for Instagram. That's it. That's all we're doing. 
because I had done that job for 25 years before him, and I knew what kind of trouble we could get into, and I wasn't about to get into that kind of trouble. So I was going to, let's just let somebody else go to those calls. We get a hot call, somebody else is going, we're just going to watch afterwards, okay? Because my dad did this for 25 years before me. We all have the same name. We're all Jim Wallace at the same agency wearing the same uniform. All that changes is the patches, okay? So for 20, well, 58 years, we have been doing this job at the same agency. And I will tell you that in that period of time, you learn some things about how to investigate cases. And that's what I tried to apply to Christianity when I first started to take a look at it as an adult. Do I, by the way, do I have a, oh, I was drinking a monster back there with Kyle. By the way, Kyle is evil. He keeps on giving me monster drinks to drink before I came out here. I was so jittery, I spilled it all over my shirt, and I thought, oh, that's not good. That's not good. But it dried, so I'm okay. Why am I telling you that? Anyway, a couple of years ago, we had did a movie called God's Not Dead 2. And in this movie, they asked me to do a defense, a quick defense, maybe about six minutes on why you can trust the Bible. I only got to cover a small piece of the talk I'm going to give you today. As a matter of fact, I covered a part of this talk that I am not even going to share with you today. But I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to send you a video of today's talk in its entirety, but we're not going to have time to go through all of it, okay? So let's just jump right in. I'm going to talk to you today about a book I wrote called Cold Case Christianity, but to be honest, these guys will tell you, I hate selling books. It's the worst part of writing a book is selling a book, but I'm going to send you a bunch of free stuff. I'll tell you how to get that later. Here we go. Let's talk about the kinds of evidence you can use to make a case, because there's only two forms of evidence in criminal trials, direct evidence and indirect evidence. That's it. There's no other forms of evidence, direct evidence and indirect evidence. Direct evidence, by the way, there is no category called hard evidence. That's a stupid, there's a, there's, look, oh, you got no hard evidence for God's existence, no hard evidence for the Bible. What are you, stupid? I don't have no hard evidence for anything. That's not a category. The only categories are direct and indirect. Now, direct evidence is of one kind, eyewitness accounts. That's it. That's all it qualifies as direct evidence. Indirect evidence is everything else. DNA, indirect. Fingerprints, indirect. Forensic evidence, indirect. If you don't have a witness, the witness is the only thing that counts as direct. Everything else is indirect. Does that make sense? Indirect evidence is also known as circumstantial evidence. And when I say that, you probably think that's really a weak form of evidence. Circumstantial cases are weak, right? That's what I want to dispel you of right away. Let's just do a case together. This guy's been accused of killing his girlfriend using that baseball bat. He bludgeoned her to death. Now, the question is, how do we make the case? If we're going to make this directly, we are going to need an eyewitness, an eyewitness who can tell us that she saw him commit this murder. As a matter of fact, she's so convinced that this is the guy who committed the murder, she can even identify him. She says, yeah, this guy killed my neighbor across the street, and they were dating for years before. You know this guy? Yeah, I know this guy. You saw the action, you saw it, yeah, I said, look, we're a tight neighborhood. I've known that girl for years, and I've known him for years. We do block parties together and holidays together. As a matter of fact, he was wearing the shirt that I gave him for Christmas two years ago. That's a good witness. She can only identify him facially. She gave him what he was wearing. If you got a witness like that, and it can survive, she can survive under cross-examination, you can make the entire case with one piece of direct evidence her eyewitness testimony. This is called a direct evidence case. Do you see how it looks? Let's flip it. What if he does not, he's not wearing the shirt that she gave him for Christmas? And what if he's got a mask on his face on the day of the murder? Well, that changes things. Now she cannot identify the guy. 
All she can say is, it's about the right size as the boyfriend who I know. I'm not sure we can convict this guy now. Let's do something different. Since we have no direct evidence, let's use some indirect evidence. Let's go out and make a case indirectly. Knock on his door. Dude, what were you doing yesterday, the day of the murder? He says, oh, I was all the two buddies of mine. Really? We find out he's lying about his alibi. So now he fits the general description of the boyfriend, and he's lying about the alibi he gave us. Huh. How many of you think, okay, I think he's guilty. Raise your hand. Who lies about an alibi? Raise your hand. Come on now, we're in Texas. This is a hanging state, baby. Raise your hand. Am I right? By the way, I've had cases where guys lied about their alibi because they were cheating on their wives at the time of the murder. But they were actually clear because they were with the girlfriend at the time of the murder. They weren't with the wife, but they would lie about their alibi because they didn't want to be caught with the girlfriend. That's not enough, if you ask me. But in the search warrant, we do find that he's got a bat that he has bleached. He's got a bat that matches the bat that we see in the description, and we can't test it for biological material because he's bleached it. He's soaked it in bleach. Who does this? Who is, who's here who owns a bat that you've ever bleached? Seriously, if you own a bat that you bleach, can you raise your hand, seriously? Any of those in the room? Okay. Now I've got a bleached bat, B.O. alibi, fits the general description. How many of you think he's our guy now? A few more. Also, he's been spot cleaning his jeans. We see that there's a pair of jeans that matches the description of the witness, but they're spot cleaned on the thigh. They're dirty everywhere else. What are you trying to clean off your thighs? Just open the wash. No, no, apparently he wants to spot clean something on the thigh. What is that about? Also, there is no sign of forced entry. Whoever got in this house did not have to break a door or break a window to get in. That means they were either voluntarily let in, the boys would be let in, or they had a key to get in, and only three people had a key. He was one of the three people who had a key to get in. So he's got a way to get in. Also, he'll tell you he's been a pretty uh, violent person in the past with his girlfriend. He'll say, yeah, I, I admit, I, I, I've punched her. I don't like it. I don't like that part of me, but I, I do lose my temper on occasion. And, and she always, she gets me. She, she's been together a long time, so she forgives me. I don't do it all that often, but when I do it, she understands that's not who I want to be, and she always forgives me. On the day of the murder, I'll admit that, yeah, I, I was mad at her. I, I punched her. And I even threatened to kill her in front of her girlfriends, but I did not kill her. Look, I found out on that day that she was cheating on me. Who would cheat on this guy? <laughs> Girls, do not bring that guy home to your parents, okay? So he admits to violence. Also, the witness says when he ran out of the house, he had an unusual work boot that on the side of the boot had like a leather band, a vertical band on the outside of the boot. And, and that boot's very, you do some research, there's only like one manufacturer who even makes a boot like that. And there's only one place that that kind of boot is sold. They've only sold like 30 pairs in two years. But who's got one of these pairs in his closet, do you think? Our guy. Now, do you see what's happening here now? It's like a statistical elimination process, right? He's got a one in 30 relationship to the boot. He's got a one in three relationship to the key. What are the odds that one of these guys is also one of these guys? He's one of those guys. Also, if you'd have gotten there a little bit late, he'd have been dead because he was getting ready to commit suicide. We know that because on the table, when you do the search warrant, there's a partially completed suicide note. And in that suicide note, he says that he did something horrific yesterday. Yesterday was the day of the crime. 
And he doesn't say what it is, but he says whatever it is. He says it was terrible. He wishes he hadn't done it. He's changed his own future. He's changed the future of the people he loves. But because you got there too early, he hasn't finished the suicide note. Nowhere in the note does it say that the horrible thing he did was kill his girlfriend. Also, the witness says when he drove away, he was in an unusual car. Like, what was it? Oh, like an early 70s Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Do you guys even know what that is? Seriously. Okay, so raise your hand if you think you know what a Carmen Ghia looks like. Raise your hand, raise your hand. Okay, everyone look at these people. These are old people. Okay? You do some work, you find out there's like three operating Volkswagen Carmen Ghias anywhere in the state. Like three. And sure enough, when you, you don't even know what color they are because the DMV record doesn't tell you what color they are, but you do a search warrant at this guy's house. What do you think he's got in his garage? He's got a 1972 yellow Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. Fits the description perfectly. At this point, I think we get asked the question, is it possible that he is innocent? And we're not after possible, folks. We're after reasonable because I can't prove anything beyond a possible doubt. That standard is too high. I've never proved anything beyond a possible doubt. I prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard. It's lower. There is nothing you think you know that I can't level a possible or imaginary doubt about. We're looking for reasonable. And by the way, it's possible that eight unrelated coincidences just happen to align perfectly like the stars to make this innocent person look guilty. That's possible. But that's not reasonable. He is the one common causal factor that not only explains all the evidence, it unifies all of it in a set. This is how we build cases in front of uh, juries. And this is what a, a, a circumstantial case looks like. Are we clear? I'm showing this for a reason. I love these kinds of cases. I've drawn about them in a book called Cold Case Christianity. I was an illustrator before I was a cop. I have a bachelor's degree in design and a master's degree in architecture. <laughs> and I get to draw my own illustrations. This is what it looks like in Cold Case Christianity. I call this death by a thousand paper cuts, right? If I did this in a criminal trial, there'd be 80 pieces of evidence that point to the same guy. Any one of these pieces of evidence may not look all that big, like a big of a deal. That does not seem all that persuasive to me. But when you assemble all of it together, it is persuasive. It's the weight of a thousand paper cuts. By the way, we tell jurors all the time that stop thinking that circumstantial evidence is not important. We actually have a jury instruction in every state in the land, this is what it looks like in California, that instructs jurors to treat direct evidence and indirect evidence with the exact same weight. Neither is entitled to any greater weight than the other. So stop calling it just circumstantial you know why so many cases are circumstantial? I've never had anything but an entirely circumstantial case. I don't get direct evidence cases. You know why? If you've got a witness who saw you do this thing, you're probably taking a plea, plea deal. You're not going to trial. There's a witness who saw you do it. It's not, what are you going to trial on? You're going on a trial on the cases where there's no witness. So almost all jury trials involve nothing but circumstantial evidence. Very common. Now, I will tell you the other reason why I like circumstantial evidence is because witnesses lie. You have to test witnesses. You can't trust witnesses. On their face, they could lie for any number of reasons. By the way, circumstantial evidence is not trying to deceive you. You might misinterpret it, but not because the evidence is trying to deceive you, but in witnesses, they sometimes do try to deceive you. So we have to test them. Now, we have jury instructions for this. There's four categories where we test eyewitnesses. We ask jurors to test eyewitnesses the same way. 
I'll give it to you in single words to make it easier. This is in sentences. If, if they were actually present to see what they said they saw, if they can be corroborated in some way, if they have been honest and accurate over time, and if they don't possess a bias, those four things, once you can check the box in those four areas, you can trust your eyewitness. I thought to myself, could I apply this to the gospel authors? Susie wanted to go to church because we had kids. And she was like, hey, should we raise our kids in some kind of a belief system? Well, why? I wasn't raised that way. You weren't either, really. I mean, why would we? Yeah, if you want to. I'll go. My dad goes to church as an atheist, no problem. He thinks it's very helpful. He thinks this is a very useful delusion. Raises good kids. If you want to go, I'll go. So I went. We had never been in an evangelical church, and this was a huge mega church, okay? This was one of the biggest churches in the country. And we're sitting in this huge mega church, and I had not seen live worship on this. I'm like, this is a joke. This is like a performance. This is the atheist talking, right? And the pastor gets up, you know, and he says something about Jesus. And then one of the things he said was that Jesus was incredibly smart. I'm like, really? I'm not even sure Jesus incredibly lived, let alone is incredibly smart. But I bought a Bible to see what Jesus said. And in that Bible, I realized that these people who wrote the Gospels, they're acting like they actually saw this stuff. I can test them. So that's what I did for six months. I just tested the eyewitnesses. I want to share with you what I, what I found. We're going to do three of these four categories. First one, were they really there early enough to have seen what they said they saw? Were they actually present, the authors of the Gospels? Look, this is a case my dad worked in 1972. This is two years later, 1974. Uh, this guy was accused of killing a girl in our city, about a 10-year-old girl. He was killed, and um, he confessed to all of it. Really gruesome confession, about 1,000 pages. I've read the entire transcript. It's not pretty. It's also not true. He did not kill this girl. This is my dad right here. Goofy-looking picture. I love it. He hates it. He hates that picture. He loves the fact that we look about the same age. My dad looks like he's my older brother, which I think stinks, okay? <laughs> but he loves that. But in this picture, he looks stupid. I'm sorry. Which is why I use it in public presentations all over the country, okay? Because I want to make fun of him. <laughs> look at that outfit he's wearing. Seriously. I think, I always tell people, look how big his butt is right here. <laughs> look at how wide my dad is from this point to this point over here. That's his gun sticking out right there, okay? But nobody knows that but me. You can't be the killer if you weren't there. And this guy was not there. This guy is not our killer. He died in the 90s. We just identified our killer about a month ago using ancestry DNA. You've heard of that, right? I want to thank all of you personally right now for submitting your ancestry DNA to find your lineage because it's making it possible for me to arrest your family members later. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, I don't have my DNA in that ancestry DNA. Yeah, but your second cousin has his. Yeah, your DNA is in there too, dude. Trust me. All of our ancestry DNA is available now. My point, though, is you can't be the witness if you weren't there. You can't be the killer if you weren't there. That was my suspicion about these authors. They did not write this early enough in history to have been real eyewitnesses. We have this event called the Ministry of Jesus. We have this event over here called the Council of Laodicea. This is where they decided which gospels were trustworthy and belong in our canon. But the problem is if the Gospels were written late in history, they cannot be considered eyewitness accounts because these guys would have been dead for 300 years. 
And there are skeptics who are writing books, like Bart Ehrman, for example, who would like to try to convince you either that they were written late or that they were changed. If skeptics are correct and they're written that far on the timeline, then yeah, we should stop meeting on Sunday. This is a waste of time. On the other hand, as they approach this date, the earlier they are in history, the more reliable they will become. And if they're close enough, they might actually have been written by people who actually saw Jesus personally. By the way, if you want to lie about Jesus, here's how you do this. You wait until everyone who knew Jesus is dead. Then you can write anything you want. So the other good thing about early dating is it's harder to tell a lie in the company of people who would know the truth. So I want to know how early is this? Turns out it is early. I'll make a case circumstantially. Ready? There's a book written by Luke about the first century. It's about the time, a period of time after Jesus rose to heaven through the life of the apostles after Jesus. It's called the book of Acts. It's written by the, by the, uh, the um, author named Luke. Luke never mentions, though, anywhere... In the, in the book of Acts, the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD, why would he not mention the destruction of the temple? He says in his gospel that Jesus predicts it. Well, we'll just include it that it makes Jesus look like an accurate predictor, right? Also, there's a siege that occurs where the Romans come and surround the entire city of Jerusalem. It was horrific. They starved the occupants. You try to escape Jerusalem during this time, they would execute you by crucifixion on the road outside of Jerusalem. And when they broke into the city, finally, everyone was either dead from starvation or eating their own dead to try to stay alive. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us this. Why would you not mention this horrific period of time when so much action in the book of Acts occurs around the city of Jerusalem? Why would you leave this out? If you're writing a novel about the city of New York City, you would, and it's around 2009-11, right? Would you not mention 9-11? Also... We know that Paul's alive at the end of the book of Acts. Look, dude, Paul dies in Rome. He, he ends up in Rome in custody, then he eventually is martyred in Rome. Why would you not include how he died? It's actually a very interesting story, but why would you not include it? Peter also is alive at the book of, end of the book of Acts. No mention of Peter's death. No mention of the death of James, the brother of Jesus. Look, Luke will mention the death of Stephen and the death of James, the brother of John that occurred in 44 A.D., why? James, the brother of John, is a nobody, okay? A no one. James, the brother of Jesus, is a someone. Why would you leave this out? Well, one possible reason, one actual reasonable inference, I think, is that it, it hasn't happened yet. You can't write about it if it hasn't happened yet. Sometime between 44 and 61, Luke writes a book, but he can't write about this stuff because it hasn't happened yet. Let's just date that tentatively at 60 AD. I think you could easily put this at 50 AD. I'm going to put it at 60, though, just to be conservative. Now, he writes two books. The first book he wrote is the Gospel of Luke, and he wrote that book first, and so it has to be earlier dated. I know he wrote that book first because he tells us this in the first chapter of the, gospel, of the book of Acts. I wrote an earlier book. I'm going to put it at 53. Now, why am I putting it at 53? More evidence. You might be reading through your Bible and not even seeing the evidence, but I want to show it to you. Here's one in 1 Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy. He says, Timothy, take care of your church leaders. They deserve to be compensated. I know this, Timothy, because my Bible tells me so. He says the scripture tells us this. Well, what is scripture? What is scripture? What is scripture as early as 63 when Paul is writing the pastoral letters and he writes one to Timothy? What is it that he is holding in his greedy little hands 
then he's calling it scripture. Well, the first verse, do not muzzle the ox, that comes out of Deuteronomy. That's Old Testament. But the second verse is nowhere in the Old Testament. The second verse is in the New Testament. It's in the Gospel of Luke. He is including Luke as scripture as early as the early 60s, and he expects Timothy to recognize it as scripture. That's interesting to me. That means that Luke's gospel is at least available to him at this point, and that's 60s. I said, though, 53. Why? Because there's another place where Paul is writing to a group of people. It's the Corinthian church. He had planted a church in Corinth. He planted that church in Corinth in about 51. And check this out. Within two years, that church is off the rails, okay? People are sleeping with their family members. They're getting drunk before the Lord's Supper. He's writing back to them and saying, hey, uh, hello, knock that off. I taught you how to do the Lord's Supper, and it's not like that. Let me remind you how I taught you the Lord's Supper. And he writes to the Corinthian church, and he says this. Now, I read through all of the versions of the Lord's Supper to see where is this coming from? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said to do that. You did communion today. And, and Paul says, yes, you should do this because Jesus told us to do this in remembrance of him. Well, you realize that John didn't say that Jesus had said that in his version of the Lord's Supper. And Mark doesn't say that Jesus said that in his version of the Lord's Supper. And Matthew doesn't say that Jesus said that in his version of the Lord's Supper. Only one person says that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. He is quoting a larger piece of the gospel of Luke again. Luke, his buddy, Dr. Luke, who traveled with Paul, he is quoting his scripture again. Now, much earlier, 53, he is quoting that scripture and calling it authoritative. And he was using it two years earlier with the Corinthian church when he planted it. How early is the gospel of Luke? It's early. Now, interestingly, the first paragraph in Luke's gospel is interesting to me. Because in the first paragraph, I'm looking for keywords. Now, I got a little extra time here, so I just want to say this to you, okay? We do this thing called forensic statement analysis. And what it is, is we're looking at deception indicators. We're looking at places where you use pronouns. How do you use the pronoun? We're looking at places where you use optional words, like adjectives and adverbs. We're looking at places where you either compress time to skip something or expand time to cover something up. We're looking at how you use language to see if you are lying to us. I have suspects simply write out their statement before I do the interview. And I give them 24 lines, one page, a pen. They can only make a correction if they cross something out. So I can read how in a 24 period of time, how many lines per hour are they using? I can see if they're compressing or expanding time. Follow me so far? When I was a new investigator of the Gospels, the first thing I did was a forensic statement analysis on Mark's Gospel, looking for deception indicators. You can actually apply this process other places. This is how I became a Christian, just doing this process. But here in this sentence, there's some interesting things I want to show you. By the way, my family hates this part of my life, okay? Especially my kids. Now, my kids are grown now. They're 30, 28, 23, 22. My 22-year-old is in the Marine Corps. She's a military cop in the Marine Corps, okay? Which is good, because if she was home, I would have killed her by now, okay? So luckily, she's in the Marine Corps where I can get my hands on her. Because okay, I would choke her. Because I love this about her. She is naturally rebellious. She just is, but fearless. Fearless. But I would tell her, Mia, before you say a single word you're going to tell me right now, just remember, I'm going to hold every word you say against you. <laughs> Pick your words wisely. Two, I'm going to hold every word you could have said but chose not to say against you. <laughs> Go ahead. 
And then she would usually just say, okay, just confess to it. It's just easier. It takes less time to have me you know, badger her to get this out of her. Something's happening here that's interesting. I want you to see it. Luke is not an eyewitness of Jesus. He was with Paul in the book of Acts. He's an eyewitness of all the stuff that Paul did. But he had contact to the eyewitnesses because they were all Paul's buddies. So he's able to interview all the eyewitnesses. And he says that in this passage. Now, what's interesting about this, in the second sentence of this passage, he says, hey, therefore, since I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may have the certainty of the things, may know with certainty the things you have been taught. Now, this is important because there are some optional words here, optional words that he does not have to use. Here's one right here. That's it. Why use that word? Why tell me it's careful? Okay, you investigated. I get it. Why are you saying you carefully investigated? Well, there's another early account of the Gospels that is not careful. This would distinguish his account from that other guy. And there is another early account that's not as careful. It's called the Gospel of Mark. Compare the word count in the Gospel of Mark to the word count in the Gospel of Luke. It's ridiculous, right? Also, he uses this term, most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent. Why say that? Well, that's a term that usually is used for some leadership in local cities in the first century. So this is somebody who's a somebody. But I don't know what somebody he is, or if he's even a believer or a non-believer. We don't know anything about Theophilus. Third, it says that I am writing an orderly account. That word in the Greek means correct, chronological, duh, duh. You're writing a history and you're telling me it's in the correct order? Don't I assume it's in the correct order? Why do you need to tell me that your history of Jesus is in the correct chronological order? Well, if there's another story about Jesus that's out there that is not in the correct order, this would separate his account. There is another early account of Jesus that's not in the right order. It's called the Gospel of Mark. Mark, Compare Mark to Luke. You'll see there's some order problems there. What's, What's the deal with that? Well, Papias tells us very early in church history that Mark wrote his account at the feet of Peter in Rome when Peter is preaching in themes. He's not preaching the history of Jesus. Mark then reassembles his account from the teaching of Peter in Rome, and Papias says that Mark's gospel is accurate, if not orderly. And he uses the exact same Greek word. So Papias tells us that Mark's account's not orderly. And sure enough, who do you think this guy quotes, Luke, more than any other source? This guy quotes more than any other source, Mark. Only now he's got it in the right order. But that means that Mark's account has to be available to him. It has to come earlier. I think Mark's account is very early. How do I make this case? Well, you're making it, you see the circumstantial evidence. There's a good reason, good evidential reason to believe that forming a timeline that Mark's account is early, and timelines tell a whole story. Let's just jump down past. Now, the second category of verification is about corroborating evidence, and there's lots of different ways to corroborate the claims of Scripture. I think I can think of like six or seven ways to corroborate the claims, including the stories of non-Christians in the first century when they described Jesus, including archaeology, including internal, all kinds of ways of doing this. We're not going to talk about any of them, thank God, right? So I just proved that God exists because I could just lock the doors and keep you in here until I cover all of this, but I'm not going to do that. Therefore, God exists. So just relax, okay? I've already proved God's existence. Now let's do this next thing. We're going to jump down to the third category. How do we know these things weren't changed over time? This guy killed his wife, Carol, And he got rid of her body, and he told the family that she had run off, and they believed that. 
So we took the report, 1981, missing persons report. We left it that way. Six years later, we're going through some old paperwork. We're like, hey, let's clear this case. I'm sure six years later, she's returned. Call the family. The family says, no, she never returned. Well, wait a minute. What, seriously? Why didn't you call us? Well, I just think she ran off. She ran off. She has a six and an eight-year-old. She ran off. She never used a credit card. She never appears anywhere in history after this. She's not on social media right now. She's never contacted her kids in all these years. Who does that? What mom does that? Would Carol be the kind of person who would do that? Well, no, but you know, she did. How do you know? No, this is a murder investigation. So we opened it as a murder investigation in 1987. And by the way, six years later, there's no crime scene. There's no body. There's not a single piece of physical evidence. When I picked the case up in 2010, there isn't anything except his changing story over time. That was enough for the jury to convict him in about four hours of deliberation. Nobody believed us. Keith Morrison did not believe me. He was just, Jim, you got this one wrong. I can tell you all the other ones might be up, but this guy's the wrong guy. He doesn't, he, I don't believe he did it, Keith said. His family doesn't believe he did it. Carol's family doesn't believe he did it. No one believes he did it. I said, oh, Keith, he did it. At the sentencing hearing, he confessed and gave us the location of the body. You can actually prove something is true to a jury, yet have many unanswered questions. I always have unanswered questions. I only say that to you right now because some of you are in this room, even young people are thinking, I got too many unanswered questions. Really? You think you can't render a verdict on something with an unanswered question? I would never put you on a jury. I will ask that question. Are you somebody who has to have every question answered before you can be on a jury? Yes, I think I am. You are dismissed. (laughs) You're not getting on my jury. Because I can't answer every question. I couldn't tell you how he killed her, where he killed her, when he killed her, how he got rid of her body, how he moved her car. I can't tell you any of those things. You need to be able to pull alert on this without those questions answered. Can you do that? You've got more than enough reason to believe Christianity is true. And if you've got an unanswered question, get over it. Every worldview, you've got an unanswered question. Under atheism, I had like eight major unanswered questions. I still stayed an atheist. Here, a change in the story gave him away. I suspected that might be the case. And Bart Ehrman, that skeptic I showed you, also thinks this is the case. He thinks whatever that story of Jesus is, even if it's early, it's not the same thing you have in your Bible today. That story about Jesus was changed over time. The simple Jesus, who was just a preaching rabbi in the first century, all the miracle stuff was added over time until the Jesus of Nazareth became the Christ of Christianity. And he calls that book, How Jesus Became God. Is that true? Same thing kind of happens in in criminal trials. You have a crime scene and then you have a courtroom. You get a piece of evidence in the crime scene, like a casing. I bring it to trial 30 years later. I show it to the jury. I say, jury, that casing has an extractor pin mark on it that matches the extractor pin that is in the handgun used by the defendant. He owned that gun. This extractor pin mark demonstrates that he's our guy. Really? How do I know, Jim, that you didn't, somebody didn't pull that out of property 10 years after the fact? Etch in the extractor pin mark put it back in property so it looks like it matches the defendant's gun. And the next person up has no idea it's been altered. So they investigate it as though it's legitimate. By the time you get it as a cold case detective, it's been altered for 15 years. How do you know? It was that way in the original. Something similar happens in our examination of scripture. How do we know that the story of Jesus was not changed before it gets into the courtroom? I got 330 years to work with. That's time for a lot of change. 
By the time the person who brings it into the council is bringing in this document, who knows if it's even close to what the original was. Do you see the problem? By the way, this is a common objection that's offered, and young people buy this wholesale. Think about this. We need to be able to answer this for our kids, if not for ourselves. So what we do in real criminal trials? Here's how we prove this in a criminal trial. We say, okay, was there an officer who was at the scene of the crime back in 1980 who took a picture of the crime or took a picture of the actual piece of evidence or wrote a supplemental report with detail describing the piece of evidence? That guy, does his pol- do you know what a Polaroid is? Oh, really? You think you know what a Polaroid is? Okay, you all think a Polaroid is this. Wait for it, wait for it, it develops. How many of you have used that kind of camera? Raise your hand if you've used that kind of camera. It's like everybody, right? For all young people, that's called a Fuji camera, right? We've seen that Fuji makes those. But how many of you have used this? Yeah, you used to have to wave it and make sure it dried first or it would mess it up. If you've used that kind of camera, raise your hand. Fewer. How about this kind of camera? Oh, you remember it had a lid, it had a top on it, right? It pulled the top off, right? And then it would develop. How many of you have used that kind of camera? Oh, much fewer, much fewer. Okay, got it. How about this one? We used to put the solution on the film so it would develop. How many of you have used that kind of Polaroid? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Take a look at it. Keep your hand up high. Keep your hand. This probably is like the walking dead, okay? These are people who are so old. <laughs> they could literally stroke out right now before we get out of this room, okay? <laughs> My dad had a Polaroid camera, and if he got to the crime scene afterwards, he would ask that, detect- that, that officer to give him the evidence. He would take a picture of it or write his own report, book it into property. Then we get it out of property. We write a report, taking it to the crime lab. The crime lab writes a report describing everything they see. That extractor pin mark better be in all these reports. It better be in all these images. Then they're going to give it to someone like me. I'm going to take a report, write a report describing what I pick up from it. This is like a links in a chain that connect the past to the future and describe if the evidence is changing over time. This is called the chain of custody. And in every criminal trial, every piece of evidence, we're going to have to show the chain of custody. Is there a chain of custody for the New Testament? Yes, there is. Let me show it to you. Here's one. Courtroom is here. Crime scene is there. Who's the first person at the crime scene? Well, it's somebody named John, let's say, writing a gospel. Fine. He's taking the first picture of Jesus. What is in John's supplemental report? What is in John's Polaroid? Well, ask the next officers in the chain of custody. What do they say about it? Those next officers are simply the three personal students of John, Ignatius, Papias, Polycarp. These three guys sat at the feet of John and listened to everything he said about Jesus. And lucky for us, they became leaders in the church and they wrote their own letters to congregations so we can see what it is John taught them. We have seven letters from Ignatius. He quotes a ton of New Testament books and we have nothing from Papias. Ah lost that stuff. But we do have one letter from Polycarp to the letter to the church in Philippi. So we can now compare what does Ignatius say about Jesus compared to what John says about Jesus, compared to what Polycarp says John said about Jesus, compared to what Polycarp says Ignatius says about Jesus, and what Ignatius says Polycarp said about Jesus. You get the idea, right? Now we can see what is the first picture of Jesus. Is it less supernatural? No, no virgin birth, right? No miracles, right? No rising from the dead stuff, right? We can see if that stuff's present in the earliest versions. 
Now, these two guys also had a student who they gave this information to. Ignatius and Polycarp had a student named Irenaeus. Irenaeus becomes another leader in the church, so well known that he writes a ton of stuff, most of which survives today. And he even makes a list of 24 New Testament books that he is using with his students. Don't let anyone tell you that the New Testament is not early. Don't let anyone tell you that the New Testament is established and created at a church council. That's not true. It is being quoted immediately. It is being listed hundreds of years before any church council. Irenaeus has got a student. His next, next link in the chain here, his name is Hippolytus. He does get in some trouble, though, and he ends up in custody. He dies in the mines of in Italy, so he dies in this area, and I cannot find a reliable student of Hippolytus, so I leave it there. But there are other chains of custody, one from Paul all the way through Tatian, one from Peter all the way through Eusebius, and you can compare these chains of custody to each other, too. Like, one is in Asia Minor, one is in Rome, and one is in North Africa. These are in very different places in the empire. How do you know what the guy in Rome is using or the guy in Asia Minor is using if I'm in North Africa? How do I know that? Am I going to call him? Am I going to text him? Am I going to Snapchat these guys? How do I know what these guys are using over there? We're in a point in history where the idea of this geographic separation helps us to determine if this is true, if the story is transcendent. So if you lost all of the New Testament, you have no New Testament Gospels, you have no New Testament documents at all, but you do have the first letters of the eyewitnesses' first students, you're stuck with the same Jesus we've always had. Jesus doesn't change over time. All the stuff that is most difficult for the atheist to admit is there early and never changes. Written in the lifetime of people who would have known better, yet never changes. Let's go to the last piece, bias. What motivates people to lie? We have a bar in our sound called The Crest. It's a biker bar. In this biker bar, we always have drunk bar fights. And when you get there to break these things up, you have both sides who are drunk pointing at the other side and wanting the other side to go to jail and saying the other side is lying. Well, tell you what we do. We just take everybody to jail, okay? It's just easier for us because I'm not coming back here tonight. That's number one. And number two, you are technically drunk in public. So you're gonna go to jail. That's what we typically do, okay? Now, we are trying to figure out, though, just one side telling us the truth. Because it turns out there are three things that motivate people to lie. They're the same three things that motivate people to kill. The same three things that motivate people to steal. They're the same three things that have ever motivated you to ever commit any sin you've ever committed or ever will commit. Only three motives. Here they are. By the way, if you want to protect yourself from stupid, you know, you're leading a church, you want to protect yourself from falling. You're leading a CEO of an organization, you want to protect yourself from falling. You're in your marriage, you want to protect yourself from falling. You're a kid, you want to protect yourself from being stupid. These are the three ways you protect yourself. First, financial greed. A lot of stupid is done because of financial greed. That's pretty obvious. Second, sex. Relationships. Those will get you in trouble. Third is more nuanced because it encompasses everything else. Pursuit of power. That's what causes people to lie. That's what causes people to commit a murder. When one gangster says, you will not disrespect me, pop, what is that? That's in the third category. When someone says, I'm gonna kill 40 people because I don't like the color of your skin, what's causing that? Third category. Everything's in those three categories. Now, why is that helpful for us? Because if we're saying that the gospel authors are lying to us about what Jesus did or said, 
Well, we know, why would they lie to us? It's only in those three categories. Those are the only three reasons why anyone lies. So you can test this. What would motivate these people to lie to us? Do you think they're getting a bunch of money out of this? Seriously. Do you think they're getting lucky out of this? I don't think so. Do you think they're getting powerful? Now, that's what Bart thinks. Bart thinks, Bart uh, Ehrman thinks that, that, that they are that you are making a name for yourself as a religious leader in a community where before you were nobody and now suddenly you're the go-to guy. So that would cause you to say things that aren't true. It's power. Now I want you to think about that for a second because that to me makes no sense at all because the most of the New Testament is written by one guy named Paul who writes all those letters You're telling me that Paul is doing this for the pursuit of power because he wants to be a respected authority in a religious community? Uh, Duh, he was the respected authority in a religious community because he was raised under one of the best Jewish rabbis and then he became a Pharisee in that Jewish community who had the power, authority, and respect to draw papers to kill Christians. He's in the middle of doing that, hunting Christians, and one day you're thinking, okay, so what does Paul do? He's like, you know what? I'm gonna jump out of this position of authority, power, and respect I have with this larger group of Jews. I'm gonna jump in with these Christians and get my butt kicked all over the planet for the next 30 years, hoping someday to return to the position I started with? Seriously, is that what Bart Ehrman thinks? He's motivated by, no, that's stupid. If you were a religious leader in the Christian community in the first century, you were like this deer with this birthmark right? That thing's on your forehead as a Christian. Early Christian leaders were tortured for their claims. Died as, look, if you want to end this in the first century, let me tell you how you end it. You get the body of Jesus and you drag it around town. That would be game over. Or you get one of these eyewitnesses to recant publicly. And you don't think they tried to do that? You don't think they tried to get these guys to say it wasn't true? By the way, you might say, well, look, Jim, I would, I would die before I would deny Jesus. So what? That has no evidential value to me. Do you know how many people are willing to die for what they don't know is a lie? That's true of every religious believer in the world. So that has no value to me. But this is the one group who would know if it's a lie. They're in a different category than you and me. Yet they don't change their story. Let me just finish with this last claim that drives me nuts. Oh, you know, Jim, if you want me to believe the Gospels or anything about Jesus, it can't be from a Christian source. I'm going to need a non-Christian source before I can believe anything about Jesus. Really? Yeah, you know, I think these people are too biased. They think that Jesus is the Messiah. They think that Jesus is God. I can't believe them. That's stupid. If you're working robbery homicide and you don't have a homicide that day, you are stuck with a robbery. So here's a bank robbery. I love bank robberies. I got some great funny stories about bank robbers. Ugh. This guy was pretty clever though. He comes in with what's called a demand note robbery. He doesn't want to make a scene. You can do a demand note robbery, by the way, in any bank in, at any time. Just come in with a demand note that says what you want and a gun in your pocket. You put the demand note on the counter. You just reveal the top of your gun, put the gun back in your pocket, put the demand note back in your pocket. Now we're in a robbery. It looks like a transaction at this point. But this is actually a bank robbery. Now, that was clever, except when he came in to commit this robbery, he failed to notice that the Kathy sitting behind the assistant manager's desk was somebody that he went to high school with. (laughs) 
And he just failed to notice that. But she noticed him, and she thought, I'm going to talk to him because I haven't seen Robert in forever. So I'm glad he's here, and I'll just say hi. I haven't seen him like in 15 years. But now as she looks up, she looks at her coworker, and her coworker is looking at her like, hey, this is a bank robbery in progress. They know what that looks like. And so she's getting ready to push the button, but she can't believe it. She is shocked that this guy she knew from high school, who was one of these top drawer kind of guys, right? I mean, a great grades, great athlete, uh, student body leadership. If she had to make a list of all the people who would ever do a bank robbery in front of her, Robert would be at the bottom of her list. Yet here he is doing a bank robbery, and that's why she's shocked. And I know she's shocked because it says so right here, she is shocked. But she's shocked because she knows this guy, and the kind of guy that she knew him to be, there's no way that kind of guy would do a bank robbery. Now, let me ask you, do you think I should interview her as a witness? I don't think so. Can't really trust her, because she is convinced that Robert is a bank robber. In other words, when she thinks of Robert Smith now, he's a bank robber. So she's biased. I mean, she thinks that Robert Smith, she's, she's so biased. I mean, she's like a Robert Smithian. She thinks Robert Smith is a bank robber. You can't trust her now. Do you see how stupid this is? No, she didn't start off thinking Robert Smith's a bank robber. That was not her first inclination. No, she now is convinced he's a bank robber because she saw it with her own eyes. There's a difference. I think she's a great witness. By the way, is there anybody like that in the New Testament? Somebody, I get it. Some of these guys, they were expecting a Messiah. They were the disciples of John the Baptist. And when John sees Jesus, he says, there's the guy you were expecting. So they all jump off of John's train and they all jump on Jesus' train. I get that. Except for one who was not part of the discipleship of John the Baptist and nor was he a friend of any of these guys. In fact, he was hated. He was a tax collector named Levi who comes in dead last, not appreciated by anybody else, has no friends in the group. Yet after three years of seeing that nonsense, he is now a believer and he writes a gospel. Are you telling me we can't trust what he says? Yeah, he's convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but not because he started off that way. He was convinced on the basis of what he saw with his own eyes. If you can trust Kathy, you can trust Matthew. Now we started off with this guy. How do we know that we can make a case for this guy? Well, it's a cumulative circumstantial case. That's how we make all cases, every case I've ever worked. How do we know, for example, though, that we can trust what is written about Jesus? Well, we have to make a circumstantial case. And how do we make that case? We make it on the legs, four legs of information. We start off, is it early enough? Yes. I think there's more than enough evidence to demonstrate that this is a reasonable inference. We didn't talk about anything in this category. I talked about one piece of this in the movie. I just talked about that piece right there. But there's a lot more to talk about. I'm going to send that to you in a video. Also, has it changed over time? That's a reasonable inference. Has it changed over time? We know it hasn't changed over time. We can actually test that. I'm not even inclined to say there's any possibility it's changed over time. We can actually test this. It hasn't changed over time. Maybe a lie, but it hasn't changed over time. Finally, do they have a reason to lie to us to begin with? Well, if they do, you tell me what it is. I don't think they do. This is how we build a cumulative case. And this is why I don't do this when someone asks me, why are you a Christian, Jim? Oh, well, uh, do you have two hours? Because that's what it's going to take to do this. This is a reasonable inference, but it's a cumulative reasonable inference. I don't do this on Twitter. I suggest you don't do it either. I suggest if you know somebody who actually wants to know if this is true, have lunch with him or her. By the way, I'll just tell you this. It's truth claims in the context of relationship that are the most influential. So you can give him my book with all the truth claims, But better, you read the book. 
And in the context of your relationship, you share those truth claims. Truth claims in the context of relationship are powerful, especially for young people. I'm not a Christian today because it works for me. It doesn't work for me. I'm not a Christian because I was trying to fix something that was broken. Had a great marriage with my wife for 18 years. We were together before we ever became Christians. We've been together 22 years since, and I will tell you that Susie will tell you that the first 18 were far easier. It's very easy to draw the, just to basically throw the dart against the wall, and wherever the dart lands, you draw the bullseye. That's what we were doing for, eight, for 18 years together. Now we realize there's been a bullseye there all along, and we can never hit it. It's hard to be a Christian. For young people right now, it's hard to be a Christian. But it is true. And once I discovered it was true, I was in. Even on days when I don't like it, it's still a day when it's true. Wouldn't you much rather be in an inconvenient truth than in a convenient lie? I would. So it's a high regard for the truth that keeps me in on the worst day. Now, I've written books about this. I brought a couple of them here. I'll be happy to sign them for you. That's fine. But I'm going to try to send you something for free. I just want you to know where my heart on this is. My heart on this is that I don't need, I I have a pension. I just think this is true and we ought to talk about it. We ought to share it with our kids in such a way that it makes a difference. Everyone in this room knows somebody between 15 and 25 who has walked away from the church. You all know that person. Why is that happening? We haven't told them the truth. We write books for kids for that reason. And we have one book. These are books about what is true for 8 to 12-year-olds. We also talk about, okay, that's fine. Once you know what is true about God and about you, you still may not know how to teach it to Gen Z. So we wrote one how-to book. It's called So the Next Generation Will Know. I wrote it with Josh McDowell's son, Sean McDowell. My point is, though, this is not a book that's going to teach you about Christianity. It's going to teach you how to teach others about Christianity who are younger than you. This is the most important generation in the church. I wrote this for pastors, Christian educators, and parents. Now, I'm going to send you a bunch of stuff from our website, which is just coldcasechristianity.com. The way to ask questions for me in the next couple of days, if you have a question, is simply to download the phone app and then send me a question in the chat room because I answer those questions every morning before I do anything else. I just answer the questions on the phone app. It's just Cold Case Christianity in your app store. If you missed anything today, I'm going to send it to you. I'm going to send it to you by way of a text. So all the old people, listen up. This is how this works. You're going to text me a message to a number. That's the number you're going to use is this stupid number I could not control, 66866. I get it. A lot of sixes in there. (sighs) What am I going to do? And you're going to text the message, one word, detective. And when you text that message, detective, I'm going to send right back to you a link to today's talk, last night's talk. You'll have all of it. By the way, before I leave, I want to say one thing to you. I don't actually get asked to come to many churches because churches don't seem to have a high regard for making the case this way. But you've had Frank Turek here. Now you've had me here. You know why that's happening? Good leadership. That guy sitting back over there. So if this is your church, congratulations. Good job. If you're just here because you followed me on social media and you wanted to come here today, this should be your church. Seriously. We have to make this case for our kids. The better chance for young people to come out of this alive 
is in a church like this. And what you're doing here with the youth is pretty impressive. I must have met three people who are teaching apologetics to your youth groups out in the lobby. Your young people are probably getting the case made to them, which is going to make a difference when they get older. What we do in this church with youth matters. I just want to congratulate you on that. Come here for no other reason than this. But I will tell you, I walked in here earlier today and I saw you have a table out there for your small groups and I thought to myself, really? Do you realize that young people for the most part do not believe it's necessary to be part of a community to be a Christ follower? That is a lie. You cannot be a Christ follower and not be part of a community. Did you know that? We are in the image of a triune God who has been in community from all eternity. We don't follow Allah. We follow Yahweh. Yahweh is triune. Yahweh is in an eternal relationship. You want to follow Christ? You have to do it in the context of relationships. And this is not a relationship. Your attendance on Sunday morning is not a relationship. But this church is giving you an opportunity to be in smaller communities where you can develop face-to-face relationships where you can be known by name. They're called small groups. This is a struggle for every church in America. Why? Because more and more people think, I don't even need to go to church. I can watch it online. If you're watching this online, what are you doing? You're violating your very nature designed in the image of God. Don't leave this room. Don't leave this building today until you join a small group. Oh, I don't know, Jim. You know, it's an extra night. I wish I had an extra. I don't have it. Yes, you do have an extra night. Seriously. You want to see what I love? I hate to admit this. Look at my time usage and you will know what I love. I can make all kinds of other claims. Look at how many podcasts. I was just talking to Kyle about this. I hate to admit this, but most of my podcasts are not about theology. Most of the podcasts I spend my headspace on are about sports. I got all ESPN and Fox Sports podcasts on my phone, and I have a tendency to listen to those first. What does that tell you about the condition of my heart? Yeah, I get it. It's an extra day a week, an extra night a week that you're going to have to go and be part of a small group. I get that. It's hard. But if you're a Christ follower and you're in this community, you better be in a small group. Don't leave here today. And I just think nothing in this for me. I don't care. This is not my church. I get to go back to Los Angeles tomorrow. This is not my, this is your life as a Christ follower. Let's pray. Father, we know that we can do a better job of following you. And we know that we can worship you with our voices and our prayers and our songs. But boy, we don't often worship you with our minds. We're going to sing right now. One more time. Would you hear our thoughts and our prayers as we're singing? We repent for all the time we spend away from you. We repent with all the time we spend thinking about something other than you. Help us, bring us home. Help us to be focused on you and know that this is true, not just because we want it to be so, but because it's clear on the basis of evidence. We pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. And everyone here says, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.